Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Good morning to you. My name is Kathy Kayla and I welcome you to the Discam Medical Monday. It gives me tremendous pleasure to welcome Professor Jose Ramos into studio. He is, uh, I mean, his, his CV is as long as my arm, so I can't read all of that, but he is, a, he's an expert. He's an adjunct professor by the, by, um, well, at the University of the Vitwatersrand. He's co-founder and a past president of the Hepatopancreato Billary Association of South Africa, having been uh, president from 2009 to 2013. He's the head of the HPB surgery at the Wits University Donald Gordon Medical Center, and uh, he's a trustee and founder member of the Gastroenterology Foundation. He is incredibly, incredibly experienced. He is a surgeon. His particular interest is in gastrointestinal health and digestive health. He's, you know what, let me introduce, well, I think that that's enough of an introduction, but we, that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about gastrointestinal health and how to maintain your health and how to spot the warning signs if there is something amiss. Because often what's happening with our organs inside, we only hear about, you know, once it's already quite progressed. So uh, welcome, Professor, and thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Kathy. It's really my pleasure to be here, and good morning. To, I presume it'll be in the morning. Good morning to your listeners as well. Um, yeah, I think thank you for the introduction. It's really nothing special. It's just the work that I do. Uh, but as you said, my area of, of expertise and work is in the digestive system, and that includes the liver, the pancreas, and the bile duct system, and the gallbladder. And I think it's a very pertinent topic to try and um, give people information as to uh, what constitutes um, a healthy digestive system and the warning signs, as you've mentioned, as to what could be causing or could be going wrong. Okay, so let's start off with what is the digestive system? Where does it okay. start? Where does it end? Okay, so basically the, the system is designed to be able to take in nutrients when we eat and drink, process them, and allow the body to use the value, the nutritional value of those uh, of those substances that are taken in. And so the tubular system would be starting at the mouth and ending at the anus. So the food would go into the mouth, down the esophagus, go into the stomach, then the small intestine, and then the colon, and the um, waste products are excreted as stool from the anus. But another very important component of the digestive system is the uh, liver, the pancreas, and the bile duct system because that works together with the tubular component of the digestive system, and that is how we are able to break down foods that we take uh, and absorb things as well. The liver, I mean, they all have very important functions, but essentially that's what the digestive system is designed to do. Okay, so maybe let's look at organ by organ, okay. if that's okay. So the esophagus, mm-hmm. that would go from where? Our throat Yeah, from to the our throat stomach. To, the, to the stomach, where it joins the stomach. It's... Um, the esophagus runs through the chest, it's in the back part of the chest, and it meets the stomach just below the diaphragm. The diaphragm is the muscle between our chest and our abdomen that we use for breathing. 
Um, so it's really a an organ designed to propel the food that and liquid that we drink down into the into the stomach. Um, Is it made out of special tissue, considering yeah. that it's dealing with, you know, external. Um, you know, food and drink. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all external elements. I mean, is there yeah. is there a certain level of um, immunity that that is not, carried in the esophagus? Not really. The the esophagus is a is basically a muscular organ. Mm-hmm. So its pr- primary function is sequential contraction to push the food and, and drink. I'll, I'll say food in general, but it applies to whatever we take in the food down into the stomach. So it's a sequential contraction, and sometimes. There are problems with what we call the motility or the movement of the esophagus. So if the muscles aren't working properly or they're incoordinated, there may be uh, difficulties with, uh, with swallowing. But the lining of the esophagus doesn't actually absorb anything. It's quite a resistant lining. So it doesn't really have any immune function either. It's, mule, it's purely a, a conduit uh, to, um, to get the food down into the stomach. Okay. Now, between the esophagus and the stomach, there's a valve which we we can measure it. It's a high-pressure area, and that's very important because when food and drink is in the stomach, we want it to stay in the stomach more or less uh, and not come back up into the esophagus. And one of the very common symptoms uh, in, in digestive problems is heartburn. People complain of heartburn, and that's because we're getting acid from the stomach coming up into the esophagus. And if you get prolonged acid exposure to the esophagus, you start to get inflammation of the esophagus lining. And you can get sores or ulcers of the esophagus. And that's a very common symptom, especially in the modern age where uh, diet has changed. We're possibly a little bit lax in what we eat. Um, The reflux disease, what we call gastroesophageal reflux, uh, is a very common symptom. And or common disease, and the symptom, the main symptom is heartburn. So that's one of the common esophagus uh, problems that we get. In the stomach, the food is stored. The stomach is able to accommodate the food that we drink, and it's broken down physically. The stomach basically grinds the food and prepares the food for exit from the stomach. Again, the stomach doesn't really absorb much, um, but it does produce um, some substances that go into the blood which affect other other organs like the pancreas and the bile duct. But once the food leaves the stomach, we then get into the small intestine. And this is where we start to get absorption. So if the food is broken down, it has been almost um, ground down by the stomach. Pulverized. Pulverized, yeah. <laughs> um, hormones and enzymes have been secreted. Those enzymes start to work on the food, and the food is basically prepared for absorption, mainly through the small intestine. So that's where most of our nutrients are absorbed. Um, and then the, f- the contents of the intestine move into the colon, and the colon basically then uh, absorbs a lot of fluid. And with the action of billions of bacteria in the colon, you get stool formation. Essentially, that's more or less how the, the system works. And as I said, the other organs, the liver, the pancreas, and bile duct, produce substances which aid in that process. You know, I love it when, when professors can explain to me like I'm a three-year-old. <laughs> I don't mean to be condescending <laughs> No, 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 yeah. no, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> this works. It works okay. well. So, all right, so now I understand you've drawn an amazing picture of, of all the different organs or the, certainly the, uh, the tubular yeah. diagram, as it would be, yes. of, of digestion. Um, can we just talk about all the different um, 
okay, you said that the stomach is, is breaking down the food. It's kind of like a preparation kitchen, right? Where yeah. you're preparing your yeah. different parts and this goes to this side and that goes to that side. Um, so in the stomach, that is where certain nutrients and parts go to different organs. They, what are they the, all go through the exit of the stomach. Yes. So the stomach basically is linked to the start of the small intestine. Okay. It's called the duodenum. Yes. And there's a valve between the stomach and the duodenum, and that helps to regulate how quickly the stomach empties. So the, from the stomach, it can only go into the, into the duodenum. But the stomach has broken it down physically, and it's regulating how quickly the, the stomach is emptying. Okay. And then once it's in the intestine, the duodenum, that's where the bile duct and the pancreas duct join the system, and fluid from the bile duct system and from the pancreas mix with the the food that we've eaten, and that's what starts the breakdown process. Okay, so thank you. Mm-hmm. If we look at the different organs mm-hmm. that are involved with this, um, with breaking down, and that are actually form part of, um, you know, our digestive system yeah. in, in to some degree. You know, we've got the kidney, we've got the liver, we've got the the gallbladder. Yeah, so the kidney is not part of the digestive system. Uh, it's the liver, the pancreas, and the bile duct system, which includes the gallbladder. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay, so what does the liver do? Okay, so the liver is, a, is basically the central metabolic organ. By metabolism, we mean how the body processes nutrients and also gets rid of, uh, of toxic substances. Um, so the food that's absorbed from the intestine... It goes into a blood vessel system we call the portal vein system. All of the blood from the digestive system goes back through the liver. So all the nutrients that we've absorbed are in this blood, what we call the portal vein system. It's a subsystem of of veins in the abdomen, and that first goes through the liver. So the liver pulls out all of these substances and processes them. And other substances are produced by the liver in response to this. Um, and that's how the liver controls how our body basically uses the nutrients that we have taken in. Completely brilliant. The liver then also produces byproducts, uh, w- almost waste products, which we would, uh, which is secreted in bile. Bile is a, a greenish liquid that is secreted by cells in the liver, and it goes into the, what we call the bile duct system. So if you think of, about a, of a tree, the stem of the tree is the bile duct, and then you've got multiple branches within the liver, you know, larger and, and smaller and smaller branches. So it actually works in the reverse order. Bile is secreted into the tips of these tiny little branches and eventually works its way down to the main bile duct system, which goes down to the intestine or the, the duodenum. So bile it contains this pigment, this green pigment, and it also contains wastes that the body needs to get rid of. And that goes into the intestine system and it gets excreted in the stool eventually. So is that, is that really the main role of bile, is to be a carrier for... Yes, that's, that your body I think that's a good, a good analogy. So it, it, it basically does allow the liver to get rid of its, its, um, its um, waste products in a liquid form. But bile is also important in uh, absorption of fat. So it's not only uh, the conduit for waste products, the bile itself is important for um, any fat absorption. Okay. Okay, so that's, that's the liver. Yeah. Then we, we've got, um, 
we've got your bile ducts, which you spoke about. Yeah. Are there ever any problems with bile ducts? Yeah, I think one of the uh, uh, the bile duct is, as I said, it's like a tree with the trunk going down into the intestine. And a side branch of that trunk is attached to something called the gallbladder. And the gallbladder is, is basically a, a sac, uh, and it's, it's, um, it's connected to the bile duct system, and it acts as a storage organ for bile. So at the end of the bile duct, where it enters the intestine, there's a valve, which is normally closed. As the bile is produced, the pressure in the system rises and it fills the gallbladder. So the gallbladder works as a storage organ. It's able to stretch and hold the bile that is produced by the liver. One of its functions is to concentrate the bile. It absorbs water so that the bile becomes a bit more, a bit thicker. And then when we eat, when the food hits the stomach, there's a signal from the stomach to the gallbladder to squeeze or to contract. And also the same signal causes that valve at the bottom end of the duct to open. So in that way, the bile is released periodically or intermittently. And that's the way, that's the ideal way because when you eat, that's when the bile is necessary. In between meals, if the, if the intestines are empty, the bile is not really going to have as much effect in terms sure. of helping absorption. What a magnificent, magnificent piece of apparatus yeah, our body really is. Absolutely. I mean, all the different systems, how everything works. And, mm-hmm. you know, when this opens, that closes. And, and yeah. it, it just, as you were explaining, even what happens in our esophagus, you know, mm-hmm. that it's this muscular structure that just contracts in a very sequential way to get the food from our mouth to mm-hmm. our stomach. We just know it is swallowing. Yeah. Right. It's, it's just incredible. Do you and ever I, just look at, at the human body and just think, wow. All the time. <laughs> all the time. It's, it's an incredibly complex and incredibly resilient, uh, or, uh, you know, system. Just one thing about the gallbladder, I think, um, it's maybe pertinent to bring this in. One of the common diseases, a very common disease is gallstones. Yes. Um, and that's the formation of basically stones. It starts off as a, as a, as a, what we call sludge or like a mud, a thickening of the fluid. And gallstones are very common. Uh, specific, especially in the in westernized population, it's probably a combination of diet and genetics and lifestyle. But for many reasons, stones form in the gallbladder. And I'm bringing this up because it's really not uncommon for people to be diagnosed with gallstones. And maybe just to understand gallstone disease and, and what what to look out for. When gallstones are present in the gallbladder, if they're just lying in the gallbladder, they don't cause any specific problems. And we often will see patients who've had an ultrasound, for example, for some reason, and they're told they've got gallstones. And probably about 20% of the adult population, 15 to 20%, depending on which population group you're looking at, uh, have gallstones. And fortunately, the majority of patients will not have symptoms of, of those gallstones. This is Medical Monday, brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. If you've just joined us, my name is Kathy Kayla. I'm chatting to Professor Jose Ramos. He is uh, he's a professor of gastroenterology, and he's actually practices out of the Donald Gordon um, Medical Center. We're talking about digestive health and gastroenterology. Unfortunately, we're not live today, so we can't take any any of your questions. But if you do have questions, I'm sure that you could get hold of Professor Ramos and uh, ask your questions, right? Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So 
We were talking about um, gallbladder disease. Is it a hereditary? There is a, a hereditary element, um, but it's not only hereditary. You often will find that uh, a patient has it and his or her mother or grand, grandmother or grandparents will have it as well. But it's not only hereditary. Um, probably lifestyle and diet is a, um, uh, a big part to play in genetics. There are certain um, areas in the world that got, have got a very high incidence of gallstones, and it's probably a genetic um, element. But we are now seeing gallstone disease across the board, um, westernized uh, populations, even in South Africa, in our black population, as diets and lifestyles have changed, we're seeing an explosion of gallstone disease as well. And we were saying, fortunately, most cases, most patients with gallstones do not have symptoms or complications on the stones. So would you just leave them then? Or would you always have to remove them? Well, because only about one in five patients with gallstones will ever have a problem from the gallstones, we tend to leave them alone because we don't like to intervene in five people to benefit one person. But certainly if the gallstones start to cause symptoms or complications, then we do treat them. And the treatment is to remove the gallbladder with the stones because that's where the stones are made. So that's the factory where the gallstones are made. What would symptoms be? Okay, so the commonest symptom is where a gallstone blocks the exit of the gallbladder. So the gallbladder is attached to the bile duct, as I said. It's quite a thin tube. So a stone can easily block the exit. And the predominant symptom is severe pain. And it's the kind of pain that people will want to seek medical attention for. They'll want to go to a casualty in the middle of the night or go to their GP immediately because it's a severe pain, usually in the upper part of the tummy, in the center. It can be on the right side. Pain can move to the shoulder on the right side. And that's a typical symptom of a a gallstone blocking the exit of the gallbladder. We call that biliary colic. Uh, Fortunately, even those settle down in the majority of instances. But once people are getting that symptom, that would be a reason to remove the gallbladder because unfortunately the symptoms tend to recur or persist. Then we look at complications of gallstones um, outside of the gallbladder. If the stone is able to get through this duct that joins the gallbladder into the bile duct, it can move down into the bile duct and it can block the exit of bile from the bile duct. So you've got a stone at the bottom blocking the system. And the plug. Yeah, yeah. So basically you've got a, a valve at the end and the stone is sitting there blocking that. So the bile that the liver is producing can't actually get out of the system, and then we start to see effects of a blocked bile duct system, which is jaundice. The classical symptom of jaundice that people are aware of is their eyes become yellow. But before that, the earliest symptom is, in fact, the urine. The urine changes color and becomes dark, and it stays dark. Sometimes we wake up in the morning and our urine is a bit dark, but during the day it goes back to normal. But this is really a darkening of the urine which persists and gets worse. And that's a very early symptom of jaundice. That could mean a bi- the blocked bile duct system. Could jaundice be an indicator of something other than Absolutely, a blocked yeah. bile duct? Uh, jaundice is a symptom of liver disease or liver and biliary disease. So there are many different uh, diseases which can cause jaundice. Uh, from, as I said, blockage of the bile duct system, from stones or tumors, uh, from diseases of the liver. Uh, you can get acute diseases like hepatitis virus infections, which can damage the liver and cause jaundice. You can get uh, drug reactions, which can damage the liver. There are autoimmune diseases that affect the liver. And there's chronic damage from cirrhosis. Um, the chronic damage that we tend to see would be, for example, alcohol excess, uh, fatty disease of the liver, which causes inflammation, 
there are many different causes of cirrhosis, which is a chronic scarring of the liver. So jaundice is not a typical symptom or doesn't point to one specific disease. It's really a manifestation of liver disease or biliary disease in general. You mentioned something called biliary colic. Mm-hmm. Why do babies get colic? That's a, that's a different, that's a, actually a good question, but it's a different symptom. So colic just really means painful contraction. And when we talk about baby colic, it's usually contraction of the intestines. So it's, it's Again, your area of expertise. Well, yeah, not, ba- not babies. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, so it's forceful, painful contraction. And it can actually occur in any muscular organ. So in babies, we would, it's usually from the intestines. We're talking about the gallbladder trying to contract against an obstruction which can cause colic. Yes. You can get what's called ureteric colic. So that's the tube from the kidney to the bladder. If there's a stone, that tube is trying to contract to push the stone through, and that will be ureteric colic. So colic is just a, a term uh, denoting forceful contraction of a muscular structure. So what happens in a, in a baby when they've got colic? Is it just, is it the system? Is it the system getting going? Yeah, I think again, it's it's really not my area. I mean, I'm not a pediatric. Uh, question, yeah, it's not a pediatric. Uh, uh, I'm not a pediatric surgeon or a pedi- pediatrician. Yes. But it's it's probably a reaction to to what they've eaten. Um, sometimes um, sensitivity, eaten, maybe. sensitivity to certain things. And it's again forceful contraction of the of the intestine, not usually due to any severe underlying disease, not like a blockage or something like that. Yeah. But I really don't want to go too far into that. Uh, into okay, that topic. no worries. Yeah. We've got we've got lots to talk about. <laughs> yes. Let's talk about the pancreas. Mm-hmm. Very very innocuous, mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes, little organ in our body, little heard of, until somebody gets a terrible diagnosis. And it's usually stage four when it's diagnosed. If it's pancreatic cancer, I think that um, Johnny Clegg did a lot yes. to increase the awareness of pancreatic cancer. What do the pancreas actually do? All right. I think the problem with the pancreas, and that's one of the reasons we've been trying to raise awareness of pancreas disease, is because it's not only almost hidden anatomically. It's at the back of the abdomen and uh, in front of it is the, is the, intesti- or the intestines and the stomach. Uh, but people don't really know too much about it because it's, it's a vital stru- a vital organ, but the, the, patholo- the functioning and the diseases are not well understood. Um, essentially, the pancreas is a, um, an organ which is about... 12 to 16 centimeters long, and it consists of two main elements. The one is um, a hormone-producing element, so there are cells that produce hormones. The most well-known is insulin. And those hormones get secreted into the bloodstream and have the effect on other parts of the digestive system and in the rest of the body uh, via the bloodstream. The other big component of the gland, and probably the, uh, anatomically the biggest component, is a cistern that produces juice or liquid, and that liquid contains enzymes. That liquid enters the digestive system in the duodenum at the same place where the bile enters the the duodenum, and that pancreas juice is necessary to change the pH or the acidity level of of the duodenum, and also the enzymes help to digest or break down food, mainly fats, proteins, and some carbohydrates, and allow us to absorb that food. So you're actually talking about a critical organ. Absolutely, here. and I think you only you, I think we only become aware of pancreas problems when the pancreas isn't functioning. 
the, the, the radical example would be someone where we have to remove the whole pancreas. They've got no pancreas function at all. And it really is a, a, a very difficult um, um, problem to deal with because we can replace uh, pancreas function with medication, but with living without any pancreas function is, is really difficult. Um, and it's those two components. It's the, usually the sugar control or diabetes, if there's insufficient insulin, or the, uh, malabs- the malnutrition or the, the altered nutrition problems without having those enzymes essential to enzymes down. to break down. Yeah. yeah. So if, if one, I didn't realize that one could live without a pancreas. Yeah. If, if one can live without a pancreas, why, if somebody is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, why is the pancreas not just removed? Um, yeah, again, a very important question and a good point. Uh, the, the problem with pancreas cancer is not that we can't remove it or remove the whole organ. The problem is that spread occurs early. So even by removing the whole gland, the cancers have often spread into the lymph system or the surroundings of the pancreas, which we can't remove. We can remove some of the lymph glands, but we can't remove the whole system. So even though we remove the whole organ, we may anatomically or physically remove the growth, but if spread has occurred, that doesn't really help. And that's the crux of of pancreas cancer. It is an aggressive cancer. Uh, It's often diagnosed late. And by the time it's diagnosed, the spread may have already occurred, even though we can't see it. Sometimes, often the spread is microscopic, and we're not aware of it until later on the cancer shows up in some other site. Hmm. What are the symptoms? Okay, so... Things are not well, and I'm not saying symptoms of cancer, but all is not well with our pancreas. Okay, so as I said, if we look at the functions of the pancreas, we can look at what the symptoms could be. If there is insufficient insulin being produced... And again, diabetes is a common disease, and diabetes is linked to insulin, but there are different types of diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is usually the kind of diabetes we see in children or younger people, and it's because the pancreas, for various reasons, doesn't produce insulin. So there's a problem with manufacture of insulin. The cells that produce the insulin have been damaged. The very common type that we see more in the adults and in older populations, which is very much linked to what we call the metabolic syndrome, and that's really weight-related. So people who are overweight tend to get um, insulin um, insensitivity almost. They produce the insulin, but the insulin is not having its effect on the body. And that's linked to hypertension and um, uh, fatty liver disease. And that's all lifestyle and, and weight-related. That's the typical type of, t- of diabetes we call type 2. Then the, the next type of diabetes is where the pancreas has become damaged. So that's where the disease is chronically damaged. We call it chronic pancreatitis. That be from like mechanical damage, perhaps a car accident. Can be, but actually like the that. commonest cause is, is alcohol abuse over really? over a period of time, where the, the pancreas right. becomes scarred and and um, shrunken, and it's no no longer physically making enough insulin. Or, for example, if we operate on the pancreas, if we have to remove large parts of the pancreas for usually for cancer then we don't leave enough insulin-producing cells in the pancreas. So those, that's the type of, pancreas, of diabetes where there's ins- insufficient production of insulin. But fortunately, we can control for that. We can replace the insulin that the body needs with injections. 
And fortunately, there have been improvements in diabetic care and the types of insulins that are available and insulin pumps and all that type of thing. Again, that's something that an endocrinologist would tend to, to deal with. But we can fortunately mitigate the effects of not having enough insulin production. The other component, which is the um, nutrition side of, of pancreas function. And how do you know if your body is not digesting food properly? Okay. So the classical symptom, if we are not getting the fat being broken down and absorbed, that usually points to insufficient pancreas enzymes. And the consequence of that is that the fat continues down into the stool, into the colon. The colon doesn't absorb the fats, and the fat uh, mixes with the contents of the colon, and the stool tends to be very loose. It can be oily. It's often more frequent. Uh, it often has got a stronger smell because of the fats in the stool. And patients often complain of a lot of wind, which is also another symptom of fat malabsorption. So that's the classical symptom of um, the pancreas not functioning in that it's not producing the enzymes required to break down fat. So what would one have both? Yes, if, if your pancreas are not working properly, yes. if you have got problems with your blood sugar and yeah. you have these constantly runny stools that are exceedingly smelly and, yeah. and you're suffering with wind, you should go and have your pancreas checked out. Absolutely. I think often they will coexist. So if the disease process is affecting both the the hormone production as well as the enzyme production, then both symptoms will be present. But there are conditions where one or the other is more affected. Um, but it's certainly what we call an alarm symptom. So new onset diabetes should really be investigated to make sure that it may just be a type 2 diabetes associated with um, uh, with a metabolic syndrome or whether Rather there's an underlying pancreas problem. And certainly the uh, the symptoms of malabsorption, of fat malabsorption, will also need to be carefully investigated because there could be something more serious like a growth uh, and and we've, you've mentioned the pancreas cancer that that uh, that is uh, a difficult cancer to treat. Yeah, I hear I hear that it's uh, incredibly difficult to treat it. Yeah. Is there a way to you know if, if so as a woman, you know I go for a regular, um, you know checkups, breast, yeah. yeah, breast checkups yeah. and mammography and yeah. or mammograms. Um, is there a way to scan pancreas? There are. There are um, investigations we use to image or to see the pancreas um, from an, uh, an ultrasound, a simple abdominal ultrasound. It's often not well seen because, as I said, it's, re- it's, it's in the back. It's behind everything. It's behind everything. And uh, the ultrasound wave doesn't get propagated through air very easily. So, for example, if there's air in the stomach or the intestine and that's in front of the pancreas, you may not see it well. In other situations, you may be able to see the pancreas. So that would be the simplest and the cheapest way of looking at the pancreas. And then we get the more detailed um, imaging tools like a CAT scan or an MRI. And in the last sort of 10 years, we've got a very good way of looking at the pancreas, which is uh, a scope. So it's a camera that we put in through the mouth into the stomach, which has got an ultrasound probe on the end of it. And we call it endoscopic ultrasound. That's actually a brilliant idea. Yeah, and through the stomach wall, you actually see the pancreas beautifully, and it gives us access to the pancreas if we need to do biopsies and that type of thing. So it's one of the very important specific tools for looking at the pancreas. The problem is the incidence or the frequency with which pancreas uh, cancers occur is very low. 
So it doesn't make sense to screen populations for pancreas cancer, for example, because you'd have to be screening thousands of people to pick up one or two cases. Whereas breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer, uh, cancer of the cervix in women, those are much more common cancers. And therefore, in there, it makes sense and it's it's cost-effective to screen. So we don't screen for pancreas and bile duct cancers typically. Um, because it's just not cost effective and it's a difficult, um, you'd have to do really these expensive scans to try and pick up uh, diseases. Are there changes that we could make in our own lifestyles that would ensure the health of our pancreas and just keep our little pancreas, which is such an important mm. little organ in our yeah. body, working optimally and just happy and healthy? Yeah, I think the, the one of the biggest things that we can do is avoid damaging the pancreas. And the damage, we talk about acute damage and chronic damage. The difference really is when you have an acute inflammation or uh, attack of inflammation of the pancreas, we call it acute pancreatitis, in most cases the gland recovers fully and goes back to normal. When you've had chronic damage to the pancreas, the pancreas is now permanently damaged. It's scarred, you've lost the gland elements that are producing the juice, you've lost the cells that are producing insulin and other hormones, and there's no recovery. When the disease is chronic, the gland is chronically damaged and it doesn't recover. Acute inflammation, which can be from gallstones causing a blockage of the, of the pancreas duct low down in the, in, the, in the bile duct, it can be from medications, it can be from virus infections, alcohol uh, in excess. Those can all cause acute inflammation, but if you stop those uh, triggers, then it can go back to normal and it can function normally. Once you've had chronic damage, it cannot recover. And the biggest cause of chronic damage is alcohol abuse over a long period of time. That's about There's about 70% of the cause of chronic pancreatitis. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. If you've just joined us, I'm Kathy Kayla, and my guest is Professor Jose Ramos. He is a professor of gastroenterology. He also practices out of the Wits University Donald Gordon Medical Center, and if you want to make contact with him, that's how you do it. We're talking about digestive health, and we're talking about the gastrointestinal system. I mean, it's, it's, it's where our immunity is stored. It is... It's everything. It's really the center. You know, you've got two systems in my mind anyway, in the mind of a three-year-old blonde. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got the nervous system, and then you've got this system that just keeps everything running. This is like the fuel center oh. that keeps everything else going. And it's very, very important that we have optimal health, gastrointestinal health. Yes. We've been talking about the pancreas. You mentioned, um, Professor, you mentioned about pancreatitis. Mm-hmm. Let's just talk a little bit more about pancreatitis as opposed to, um, you know, alcohol consumption. Okay. All right. So pancreatitis, whenever we have itis, I-T-I-S, at the end of a, of a structure, it usually means inflammation or infection. So if we talk about pancreatitis, it's inflammation of the, of the gland. It's not cancer. It's inflammation. The same way appendicitis would be inflammation of the appendix. Tonsillitis. Tonsillitis, colitis, and we can gastritis, we can go all, all the way along. So pancreatitis is inflammation, and there are two main types, and sometimes they coexist, but there's what we call the acute variety, as I mentioned, that 
is a acute illness which fortunately usually recovers and the organ can go back to normal. With chronic inflammation, what we call chronic pancreatitis, the gland is permanently scarred and is no longer able to go back to normal. And we were saying that alcohol is the most common cause. Certainly in South Africa, about 70% of chronic pancreatitis is from alcohol abuse. And it's not only alcohol, but there's also genetic elements. There's malnutrition associated with it. There's been research to show that exposure to um, petro petroleum products and hydrocarbons may also aggravate it. But at the end of the day, you've got a chronically diseased pancreas. Not everyone with chronic pancreatitis is an alcoholic or is alcohol abuser. There are other causes of chronic pancreatitis. You could have sensitivity to it as well, I suppose. Yeah, there's autoimmune causes of chronic pancreatitis. There are familial types, where it's a, if it's a familial trait from genetic abnormalities. And there was a, there, there's always a group that we can never identify the cause as to why the person's developed this chronic damaged pancreas. And the chronic damaged pancreas is where we have problems with pancreas function as the one component, but also pain. Uh, chronic pain may be a very difficult um, symptom to treat in chronic pancreatitis. The acute types or the causes are many, and I think I mentioned uh, gallstone disease is a common one, and it's, not, it's the gallstone when it comes into the bile duct and it lodges at the end of the bile duct, and at that point it blocks the pancreas duct as well because the bile duct and the pancreas duct enter the duodenum uh, together. So you can get blockage of the pancreas duct, and that sets off pancreatitis. Fortunately, most of the times it settles down and the patient recovers fully. But you can get alcohol, uh, acute alcohol injury causing pancreatitis, and I mentioned the other causes as well. Absolutely fascinating. There's so many different, I'm watching the time. We are running mm-hmm. out of time, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Can we just talk about some of the symptoms when things go wrong with our other organs? So, mm-hmm. for example... If we have pain in our esophagus, perhaps mm-hmm. we're having difficulty swallowing. Yeah. You know, what could that be an indication indication of? Okay, well, I'm glad you rose uh, uh, you brought that up because we we think about or we talk about alarm symptoms of gastrointestinal health. So, what symptoms should we be concerned about? If we get an occasional cramp or a twinge, or we feel a bit bloated and it settles down, that's that's usually not a problem. But thing, symptoms that are not really normal or should be investigated, um, I'll, I'll discuss the following. I think we'll go in, a, in almost a sequential fashion. So if we talk about diseases of the esophagus, the inability of the food to pass through the esophagus would be the main worrying symptom. So that's food sticking. If a person is swallowing the food and it's sticking and then having to retch to get it out, that could be a sign that there's a blockage or a narrowing of the esophagus. That narrowing can be um, just inflammation and scarring from, say, reflux damage, but it could also be a growth or a tumor that is blocking the esophagus. And certainly in South Africa, we have a high incidence of uh, cancer of the esophagus, and often the first warning sign would be difficulty in swallowing. That would be a sign of uh, or alarm symptom of, of um, esophagus problems. In terms of the stomach, um, you've got to talk about pain. stomach yeah. ulcers right yeah. there are so many symptoms associated with stomach disease and you've got benign diseases and you've got even the the malignant or the cancerous diseases and and other stuff uh, other other problems which are are precancerous but of the benign conditions the most common would be inflammation of or redness of the stomach which can progress onto ulcers forming in the stomach or the duodenum and the causes um, are 
typically or the commonest causes of inflammation are also the stomach and the duodenum is actually an infection. It's a bacterial infection called Helicobacter. There's a bacterium which we often find in the, in the, in the stomach. It's called Helicobacter pylori. And it does predispose us to inflammation of the stomach and infection of the stomach and ulcers of the stomach as well. Another common cause of inflammation <clears throat> or ulcers is, in fact, uh, what we t- uh, medication that we take, anti-inflammatories. So the aspirin type of drug uh, that can those can cause damage to the stomach. And ibuprofen, I think. Yes, well, that well. would be one of them. Um, but then all the anti-inflammatories. Uh, I don't want to mention trade names, but yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, Those the group, ingredients the group, you need to look The group look is um, is uh, the anti-inflammatories. Um, they can cause uh, ulcers, and those two are the commonest causes of, uh, of inflammation or ulcers of the of the stomach. And the typical symptom would be pain or what we call indigestion, discomfort after eating, bloating, um, would be the typical symptoms. And then bleeding from the stomach. So if there's blood that's that's um, hap- or bleeding that's occurring in the stomach, sometimes we will vomit and there will be blood in the vomit. Or else if that blood passes down the digestive system, it may cause the stools to become black. So if the stools become pitch black and tarry, that's a, a sign of bleeding from the upper part of the digestive system, whether it's the esophagus or the stomach or the duodenum. And that's an alarm symptom. And that's where you get yourself to yeah. the Yeah, and similarly blood, or so any blood in the digestive, in the stool, would also be a, a, an alarm symptom. We've mentioned jaundice, that's certainly an alarm symptom. Uh, so if a person becomes jaundiced, they should be investigated. Um, new onset diabetes, change in your bowel habits, so the fatty, oily, frequent, loose stool, uh, or else a change in, in the pattern. Someone who's, who's been regular all the time suddenly gets a lot of diarrhea, or conversely, their stomach stops working and they get distension and uh, vomiting. That this that could be a sign of a blockage. Um, unexpected weight loss. So persistent weight loss for no real reason uh, would also be what's called an alarm symptom. Uh, persistent abdominal pain, which doesn't go away after a day or two, and often associated with other things like weight loss or uh, changing bowel habits, those kind of things. Yeah. Those symptoms we would refer to as alarm symptoms, and people should be checked out. Okay, so that's just the stomach, but these are no, no, I mean, they, these are these are general yeah, general symptoms. general alarm symptoms of, of digestive health. Yeah. Okay, so now let's talk to maintaining health because mm-hmm. I think that that's you know we've, we're ahead of the game. Yes. Rather than if we are proactive, rather than yeah. reactive. How do we maintain good digestive health? I mean, is it true that you should chew your food, your each mouthful a hundred times? <laughs> I don't see any harm in that. I think it's 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 a good principle because if there is a slight narrowing of your esophagus, you're less likely to get a blockage there, for example. And it, it makes sense. It helps the stomach. It doesn't have to do as much work to uh, break down the food. So it, I think it's a good idea to chew your food well, to eat more slowly. And Gosh, meals will actually take up to an hour. Can you believe it? <laughs> and possibly, um, in general, we tend to advise more frequent, smaller meals than, than, than one or two huge meals a day. That's, that's in general. But to maintain, it's not difficult to maintain digestive health. Um, and it's the boring things. It's a balanced diet. It's. Oh, he's going to tell us about lentils. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so yeah. you're going to tell us about nuts and pulses and lentils. No, right? not at all. Not at all. No. I think a, a reasonable, balanced diet. Um, avoiding excess intake of food. I think that's the big problem. And 
Also avoiding damage. We've mentioned the injurious substances, so some medications and alcohol is the is the one. And the other thing that is is becoming a big problem in the Western world is is overweight and the effects of weight on the digestive system, on the liver. And unfortunately, being overweight is one of the risk factors for a lot of cancers. Absolutely, because and pancreas, the yeah, and pancreas cancer is one yeah. of them, uh, which um, has been linked to to being overweight. So, Can those are the difficult things. Mm. And the impact of stress on our digestive health. Okay, so there's what we call the 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 gut brain axis. So the the brain is linked to the digestive system. Um, one nerve. Well, there are, multi, there are a number of nerve systems, but it's... it's What's that main nerve called? The vagus nerve. The vagus yeah. nerve. Yes. So we really but it's a two-way system. Yes. So events that happen in the digestive system will trigger events in the brain. But similarly, events in the brain can also cause changes in the gut. And what this you eat actually influences what you think. Is uh, it true? Possibly, yes, possibly. <laughs> and it may be, and, and that's where possibly stress has an influence. It's, it's been difficult to determine or to prove that stress on its own will cause a particular disease. So I'd be hesitant to say that, oh, this person's got an ulcer because of stress. And it's, it's unlikely to be just the stress. But stress will affect mainly the way that we perceive the symptoms and how we cope with the symptoms. So if you have a bit of a twinge or a bit of cramp or colic, as people talk about it, but mainly, let's say, a contraction of the intestine, which is normal, someone who is in a stressed situation may perceive that as a severe symptom or a more worrying symptom, and that may produce more anxiety than someone who's possibly not stressed. Uh, stress may affect or, or lead us into bad habits. For example, we may eat differently because of stress. We may, we drink, may not eat. Yeah, we may not eat. Or we may yeah. drink more alcohol to cope with the, the, the stress. We may take medications which can have an influence on the digestive system. So I think that's where stress uh, affects our perception and the way diseases uh, show themselves. Absolutely fascinating. I could have spoken to you for another three hours, <laughs> and you definitely have to come back. Oh, Professor pleasure. Jose Ramos, Professor of Gastroenterology, you can go and uh, get hold of him through the Wits uh, University Donald Gordon Center. And uh, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your knowledge and expertise. It's been my pleasure, and I'd be happy to. And for being to able to explain it. it like I'm a three year old. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad. No, thank you so much for the invitation. It's really been my pleasure. God bless. Stay safe, stay healthy, and I'll see you same time, same place next week. Bye.